Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Nate. I appreciate it. It's really good to be here again. I've been looking forward to this uh, ever since last Sunday when I was with you. If you can, open your Bibles to Nahum. Last week, I mentioned to you how I have needed help the whole time I've prepared these two sermons on Nahum. I've needed help finding Nahum in the Bible. And I mentioned that my two daughters, Anya, who's 12, and Lydia, who's 9, have had to help me almost every time find where on earth Nahum is. Uh, Anya and Lydia are now back there right, right now. Where is Nahum again? Is it? Okay, I won't put you on the spot. I, I've, I've learned where it is since then. Now, last week, we... I'll speak for myself, but I've also heard from a number of you that this has been the case. Our understanding of God expanded through the book of Nahum. Uh, We were challenged in a number of ways to think about God and the gospel, the good news. Uh, Not necessarily in a way that's totally new to us, but not a way we tend to think about God and the good news, the gospel. And I hope to continue that right now. Uh, because it's Nahum again, and, and that's what Nahum does. Uh, but we're going to do it in a different way today. So last week, we looked at the entire book of Nahum. We, we read through it. We, we worked through passage by passage. Today, we're going to select one verse from Nahum and try to understand that in the context of everything God's doing. Uh, so the, the verse that we're going to look at is... Chapter 1, verse 15, and it's even just the first part of that. It's a relatively famous verse, but most people have no idea that uh, it comes from Nahum. It gets repeated in Isaiah, and then it gets quoted in the New Testament a number of times. Nahum 1, 15. Look upon the mountain, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes Peace. Does anybody remember that song? Uh, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Yeah, a number of people are nodding their heads. I love that song, uh, and it's absolutely true, and I'd love to sing it here with you all at some point. But a lot of people who sing it have no idea what the good news is that, that that verse originally was speaking about. So we're going to dig in a little bit. I'm going to give you two bits of information right here at the front uh, that we're going to then kind of build throughout our time together. One is the verse that we just looked at, uh, how lovely, well, upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. That's the, the bit from Nahum. The big picture of what God is doing in the world, and then we're going to try to see how that verse in its time fits with everything God's doing. Uh, I think it's summarized really helpfully in Colossians 1.20, where Paul writes, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself everything whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
God is reconciling everything to himself through Jesus, making peace by his blood shed on the cross. Big picture. What is God doing? And this verse in Nahum, look on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. How exactly does that fit with what God's doing? So let me ask you a, a question for you to think about right now uh, and, and actually think about it. You know, people up here always say, think about this and then don't give you any time to think about it. And you don't really, you might nod your head, uh, but you don't. Well, actually think about this for a moment. What would peace actually look like in your life right now? Try to picture that actual scenario. What would peace look like in your life right now? Perhaps something would be uh, enhanced that's already there. Perhaps something would need to be cut away that's there. Perhaps things would need to be reprioritized, shifted. Uh, And not just in your own personal life. What would peace, what would it look like if that was in your family right now? And not only your family, but what would it look like to actually have peace in your community that you're involved in right now? Think about some specifics, maybe. All right. With that in mind, uh, let's kind of jump backwards into Nahum. Remember where we are in the book of Nahum. Remember what's happening Uh, That will help us understand this particular statement a little bit better. So if you could put uh, the first slide up. You remember the Middle East at the time of Nahum, which was about 600 and some years before Jesus. The Assyrian Empire is all the green. It has taken over this entire area. The Assyrians uh, would lull other nations into a sense of security Uh, would charge them money to start paying tribute so that the Assyrians would protect them. Uh, And then the Assyrians would march in and simply take over, often massacring entire cities uh, in very violent ways and extending their power that way. They would force the, the indigenous people out into other places and they would bring other captives into that place and force them to intermarry and have children so that even their very identity as a people group was demolished as they are now part of the Assyrian Empire. And that's all the green. And you can see, like Nate mentioned already, that little Judah, you see that little yellow spot? God God saved Judah when Assyria was actively trying to to take them over. God miraculously saved them, but Assyria still spread all around them. So they're living for quite a long time, I mean, generations, with a violent and extremely powerful nation completely surrounding them and always pressing, always pressing, exacting tribute, pay us, and the king of Judah always trying to figure out how do I navigate this situation where... I need to care for the people God's given me. I need to follow God. God will protect us. But this is terrifying. That's a hard situation to be in. If you turn to the next picture, I mentioned this. I'm actually going to use the visual this time from Lord of the Rings in tribute to Josh again. 
Uh, it's a little bit like this. The, the camp of those fighting for truth and goodness, following the chosen king, are completely surrounded by, uh, by people, or here, not quite people, but by beings who, who want to take over and completely demolish them and have just wiped out so many other people. I mean, this is a terrifying situation. Can you imagine living in something like this for, let's say, 80 years? Having your kids, you know, bearing children, raising them in an environment a little bit like this. So that's some of the historical situation uh, when God speaks through Nahum and says to Assyria, the entire the entire uh, empire around them, and to Nineveh in particular, the capital that's calling all the shots, says, all right, enough is enough. The time is here for me to simply stop you from all of this bloodshed and devastation. And that's good news for Judah, especially. It's actually, we, we learn from Nahum, it's actually good news for lots and lots of people. I mean, the, very, the book ends by saying, when you are gone, who, everyone will clap their hands because upon whom has not come your devastation. So God is giving good news to Judah and lots of other people. Pagan people, people who don't follow him but are being abused by the Assyrians. And God says through Nahum, okay, time is up, it's over now. So that's, that's the big context that we looked at last week. Some of you may not have been here. Uh, Right, right in the, uh, not in the middle, but, but into it a little bit, you get this statement in, in verse 14 about and to Nineveh. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Look on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. So within the context of, of Nahum and the situation they're in, what exactly is this good news, this peace that's being proclaimed and ran across the mountains? Let's, let's think about it a little bit. If you could go to the next slide. And the next one. And one more. Thanks. And another, actually. I'm going to skip that one. And one more. Thank you so much. There we go. That's the one I thought was next. Okay, this person coming, running over the, over the hills. Look at his feet. The feet of one on the mountains who brings good news, who publishes peace. I'm going to read to you a, a brief story from uh, Second Samuel chapter 18, that, that gives you a, a little more concretely uh, the picture uh, of what's going on here. Second Samuel 18. This is a time uh, well before Nahum when King David is reigning and his son Absalom, which ironically means father is peaceful, Absalom, Absalom, uh, Absalom tries to take over Judah and Israel. And David is having to go to war against one of his beloved sons. And David is, is a bit too old. He's back in his palace. The battle's raging. Absalom, uh, his army gets defeated. Absalom himself gets killed. 
And this is right after Absalom is killed, and David doesn't know this yet. He doesn't know what's going to happen on the battlefield. He's in Jerusalem, uh, surrounded by these hills, these mountains. The, the battle is out of his vision, and he, he's waiting to hear what has happened to, uh, in this battle. So look at, if you want to look or just listen, 2 Samuel 18, verses 19 to 31. Now, Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said to Joab, the commander, let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. You're not the one to take this news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, go, tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates... The watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. And the watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, If he's alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another runner, and he called down to the gatekeeper, Look, another man is running alone. The king said, He must be bringing good news, too. The watchman said, It seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimahaz, son of Zadok. Ah, he's a good man, said the king. He comes with good news. Then Ahimahaz called out to the king, All is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my lord the king. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. And the king said, Stand aside and wait here. And so he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, My lord the king, hear the good news. That's the word gospel, by the way. Hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? And I'll stop there. So, even though that situation was a little more emotionally complex, because David was glad that, that the rebellion was crushed, but his son was in charge of the rebellion. And so, it's not the same situation as in Nahum, where there's, they're only waiting good or terrible news about the oppressing armies. But what, why I read it to you is to, to help you feel maybe something of, of this personal tension of, of waiting to hear how is the battle going that I can't see and then a runner starts coming up over, over the hills around Jerusalem and you're like, okay, well, what's this message going to be? You know, well, who is it? Because who it is depends on what the news is going to be like and, oh, I can tell who it is and the anticipation of what this news is going to be and then the runner gets there and he's got good news, the gospel. You've been vindicated. God has, has won the day. Imagine how much more intense that joy would be for Judah in, this, in Nahum's day 
than it was for, for David where it was so confusing. Because in Nahum's day, that guy coming over the mountaintop with the good news, publishing peace. We don't have to be afraid anymore of this terror that we've lived with because God has completely won. That's peace. That's good news. So that's, that's a little glimpse of the idea of, of good news in Nahum's day. Uh, if you could put up the next slide. Let's focus on the next word, and we'll spend the rest of our time thinking about this. Publishes peace, this message of peace. Let's, let's think about that a bit more. Next slide, please. So I actually want your participation again. Shout out. Um, I'm going to just tell you that picture is a picture of peace. I'm not going to ask you whether you think it is or not. It is. It's a picture of peace. What about it seems like it's peace? Submission, I heard. Okay. A hand being extended, right? Anything else? Right? The sword is sheathed. It's not in his hand. It's at his side. The hand is open. He's bowing down in submission. Is anyone forcing him to? No, it's completely willing. So this is, this is a great picture of peace. Uh, this is a picture that captures so many things in the Bible, like Psalm 2, where the nations are raging, and, and David says, uh, kiss the son, the king, kiss the son, lest he be angry. It's this idea of kind of bowing down willfully before the king, kissing his hand or his foot or, or something, showing that you acknowledge that he is the king, and, and you are submitting to him and his ways. This is a picture of peace. Well, put the next slide up, if you will. Is this a picture of peace? In the biblical way of thinking about peace. Who wants to be brave and say either yes or no, and then I'll ask why? Yes, a picture of peace. Why? Either you can fill that in or others. Why is this a picture of peace? Right. The enemies are completely vanquished. There's no fighting. There's no hostility. I mean, you can imagine there's probably some in their hearts right now. But, but that is a picture of peace. And in fact, this is exactly the scene in Joshua. If you look at... Do I have it up there? If you could click down one. Joshua 10, 22 to 25. There was a situation Joshua was in with the people of Israel. So this is now before David's day, going back. There were five kings that were making war from different sides against Joshua and God's people. And after a very dramatic time, uh, battle, Joshua captured the kings who had fled into this cave. They bring them out. The, the battle is totally done, and they've got the five kings now. Joshua chapter 10, verses 22 to 25. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. But a few survivors managed to reach their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought out the five kings out of the cave. The kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, 
Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, they summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with them, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So the chiefs came forward and put their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. That's a very different way to get to peace. One was, you could say, communion, uh, of willingly submitting to the king. Uh, and communion as, as friends, that's a peaceful relationship. This other one is through conquering. But it still is peace, and it's held up to God's people as a symbol, a visual saying, look at your feet. They're on the necks of these men, these leaders who were trying to massacre you all. This is what the Lord's going to do to all the enemies that you fight against. This is a picture of hope and peace as well. God has always worked in these two ways for peace. He's always converted some, creating communion of peace, and he's conquered others. And in both situations, there is peace. In fact, think about the very beginning. I'm just going to walk through a few kind of points throughout the Bible uh, to show you that God's always been working in these two manners to establish peace. Uh, one of them is right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Well, Genesis 1 and 2, you have perfect peace. There's harmony of relationship between God and humans and between humans and each other and between humans and the world. Everything is peace. It's communion. It's, it's fellowship. Well, of course, the, the king and queen rebel against the, the ultimate king, God himself, and disharmony between them and God, disharmony between each other, disharmony between people and and the creation they're supposed to care for just kind of ruptures everything. And God, and yet God shows mercy. And he also announces violence. He says, the serpent is going to be crushed by the woman's offspring. Right, right from the beginning, you have a, a picture of this, this communion of peace between God and humans and creation. But then you have a disruption, and then you have an announcement that things are going to get better, but only through the crushing of the enemy. So right from the beginning, there are these two aspects to how God works in this world. Through communion and grace, and through the right crushing of those who do not submit, who do not love him. It continues, God made a communion of peace with Israel. And when they didn't deserve it, but he created this community of peace. And he created the situation of sacrifice, bloodiness, so that they could have peace. So there's always this tension between God crushing and God um, commending and comforting. Beyond that, think about, think about Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, a pagan city. God miraculously creates peace and communion with her. She is spared. She becomes a friend 
of God and of his people. He includes her in the genealogy of his own son. God, that's what he does. He works with somebody like Rahab. And, well, he crushes all the enemies that fight against him and his people, both at the same time. You can think about Ruth. God brought her into the family in peace, including her in the genealogy of his own son. And he cursed the Moabites, whom she was from. He, he just, there's always this tension in this broken, fallen world between God creating peace everywhere, sometimes through conversion and communion, and sometimes through conquering. Same with Nineveh itself, whom Nahum is speaking to. Back a hundred years before with Jonah, God created peace with Nineveh by their repentance and them changing. He, he brought communion and, and healing of their violence. hundred years later, as they've completely gone back on that, he announces this message through Nahum. And it's not a message anymore of communion, but it is a message of peace. I mean, we could just keep on going. That <laughs> This is who God is. This is a bigger picture of God than we often realize. And it comes to a very fine focal point on Jesus himself. And you think about the fullness of Jesus. We have him creating peace and communion with us, sinners, by being crushed. Completely crushed, like an enemy of God. Because he's bearing the sins of enemies of God. So God, even in, in the cross itself, both of these aspects of peace through communion and conversion and peace through conquering come crashing on Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection so that we are converted, made friends, and he is crushed. But think about, I said, the fullness of Jesus. You know, that's the aspect that that completely melts our hearts of, of hate and hostility and creates a warmth and a love and a conversion to Jesus is seeing what he did for us on the cross. But he did more on the cross and in the resurrection. For example, he didn't bear the sins of Satan and his demonic forces. He didn't He didn't bear the sins of people who would always reject him. We're told they're going to bear their sins at the end. He he bore the sins of those who would trust him. Satan, sin itself, death, all of those enemies that abuse God's creation and humankind, Jesus, Colossians says he put them to public shame in his cross. He, so Jesus was doing something violent on the cross, not only to himself for our sake, but doing something violent and conquering to the forces of evil. Satan himself, the powers and authorities that he led in triumphal procession through his cross, our sin demolished and death itself when Jesus rose from the dead, crushing, violently killing death. The death of death, Jesus violently killing it. And in the end, 
because of Jesus, there will be perfect peace, right? You know, so we saw, we saw pictures like this one, uh, and you can, actually, can you show the next? If you could black that out uh, for a moment, thanks. Jesus will, in the end, bring perfect peace to everything. I mean, we, we've seen the picture of, of the enemies under the feet of God's people, right? We, we've watched that visually and we've read the story. Well, think of all the times in the New Testament that talk about uh, Jesus will reign right now, resurrected in heaven. He will reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. Jesus will reign until his enemies are made his footstool. That's the image that we've been looking at, that that there have been tastes of all throughout history with Joshua, with David, with Nineveh and Nahum, of God conquering and making enemies that do not submit to Jesus under his feet, his footstool. And this is something the New Testament is constantly putting in front of us. This is Jesus. He is your loving Savior who makes peace with enemies by forgiving them and... All of his enemies are going to be his footstool and under his feet. And that's great news. Now, there are all sorts of versions of peace in our world that may look a lot like what we're talking about. For example, if you could now show that. uh, This is a, a relief about the Assyrian Empire that we're reading about. They had the same image in their culture. When they would defeat somebody, the, the king or the victor would put his foot on the neck of the people they, they beat. What they would do and the people they'd put under their feet uh, tended to be not only the men but the women and the children, heaping the dead bodies of the children at the end of every street like we read in Nahum. Uh, there, were, there was such savagery and no real justice in what they're doing, even though it might look similar. Look at the next slide. The same thing happens throughout history. This is the Romans in the days of Jesus. Uh, You may have heard of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Oh, there's just global peace under Rome. What it meant was they would absolutely demolish anyone with no mercy if there was even a spark of something that might infringe on their authority. It's the same kind of thing as with the Assyrians here. And they even depict a child under the the emperor's foot here. You may even be able to picture Jesus as a child and the Roman stooge Herod actually massacring a whole town of infants and two-year-olds because of some threat to his, his reign. If you look at the next one, it continues in our day. I mean, similar symbols of authority and peace, keeping the peace with really no justice. That's not what God is all about. He rules with complete wisdom and justice, and he does what is right. And it might look similar, but we need to use discernment to think about history, including our present day, including our own lives, how we use the authority that God's given us. You can turn the image. Not only does the New Testament tell us that that every knee will bow to Jesus 
in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not only does the New Testament tell us that Jesus is reigning until all of his enemies are made a footstool, but we're actually brought in on this. In Romans, chapter 16, verse 20, and this is where it starts to get quite personal. We're also beginning to wrap up because I'm going to leave you with some challenges based on the character of God that we've seen in Nahum that has come to a focal point in Jesus, and now we're given a challenge. Listen to what Romans 16.20 says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Did you know it said that? We think about Genesis, the beginning, how the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Oh, Jesus, he's going to crush Satan. And he does. But Paul says that that's not quite it. It's like Jesus did all the work. And you get to do work too. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, church. So what does that mean? What is your role right now with who you are in your family, in your community? within this picture of peace that God is establishing that includes conversion of his enemies into friends and communion, extending the grace of Jesus, and and what? When people do not want to have anything to do with Jesus, when you see unjust violences of various sorts around you, is, is there something that God calls you to do because of who he is in Jesus? I would suggest that we are all called to proclaim and portray God's character as it looks in Jesus Christ. Proclaim with our words and portray with our character, with, with how we do things. It's a beautiful thing to look up on the mountain and see somebody running over that is proclaiming the good news that is announcing, publishing peace. That is a complex piece in how God interacts with his world in history and right now. What can you do to proclaim the fullness of God's peace with your words and portray the fullness of God's character of peace with your actions? So, so think about that first question I, I, uh, I asked for you to think about. What exactly, concretely, would peace look like in your personal life right now? What would peace look like in your family? What would peace look like in your community? In fact, any sphere of influence that you have, wherever you are present as this beacon of God's character, what exactly are you being called to do to embody the Lord Jesus for people with your words proclaiming him and with your actions and attitudes portraying him? That's something that I don't think you should wrestle with on your own. That's why God builds a community. Uh, so, So start talking with each other or keep talking with each other about what does this look like for me? 
I'm, I'm confused about some things. I feel challenged by God's word, but I may not have thought about it quite this way before. Let's talk with each other. Wrestle with how to embody Jesus in your spheres of influence. Because of God's word in Nahum, in particular in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us to close. Father, you call us to do many difficult things, but you also give us power through your spirit to actually do what you call us to do. You call us to do many impossible things, but then you, for whom nothing is impossible, put your own spirit into us and in this community to enable us with each other to do what you call. Would you please enliven and equip us to proclaim and portray you and your son in all the fullness of peace? And we pray this in the name of the Prince of Peace, Jesus. Amen.